Chapter Ten of My Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Mark Twain by William Dean Howells. Chapter Ten. I go back to that house in Hartford where I was so often a happy guest with tenderness for each of its endearing aspects. Over the chimney in the library, which had been cured of smoking by so much art and science, Clemens had written in perennial brass the words of Emerson, The ornament of a house is the friends who frequent it. And he gave his guests a welcome of the simplest and sweetest cordiality. But I must not go aside to them, from my recollections of him, which will be of sufficient garrulity, if I give them as fully as I wish. The windows of the library looked northward from the hillside above which the house stood, and over the little valley with the stream in it, and they showed the leaves of the trees that almost brushed them, as in a Claude Lorraine glass. To the eastward the dining-room opened amply, and to the south there was a wide hall, where the voices of friends made themselves heard as they entered without ceremony, and answered his joyous hail. At the west was a little semicircular conservatory, of a pattern invented by Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe, and adopted in most of the houses of her kindly neighborhood. The plants were set in the ground, and the flowering vines climbed up the sides and overhung the roof, above the silent spray of a fountain, accompanied by callias and other water-loving lilies. There, while we breakfasted, Patrick came in from the barn and sprinkled the pretty bower, which poured out its responsive perfume in the delicate accents of its varied blossoms. Breakfast was Clemens' best meal, and he sat longer at his steak and coffee than at the courses of his dinner. Luncheon was nothing to him, unless, as might happen, he made it his dinner, and reserved the later repast as the occasion of walking up and down the room, and discoursing at large on anything that came into his head. Like most good talkers, he liked other people to have their say. He did not talk them down. He stopped instantly at another's remark, and gladly or politely heard him through. He even made believe to find suggestion or inspiration in what was said. His children came to the table, as I have told, and after dinner he was apt to join his fine tenor to their trebles in singing. Fully half of our meetings were at my house in Cambridge, where he made himself as much at home as in Hartford. He would come, ostensibly, to stay at the Parker House in Boston, and take a room, where he would light the gas and leave it burning. After dressing, while he drove out to Cambridge, and stayed two or three days with us. Once, I suppose it was after a lecture, he came in evening dress, and passed twenty-four hours with us in that guise, wearing an overcoat to hide it when we went out for a walk. Sometimes he wore the slippers, which he preferred to shoes at home, and, 
if it was muddy, as it was wont to be in Cambridge, he would put a pair of rubbers over them for our rambles. He liked the lawlessness, and our delight in allowing it, and he rejoiced in the confession of his hostess, after we had once almost worn ourselves out in our pleasure with the intense talk, with the stories and the laughing, that his coming almost killed her. But it was worth it. In those days he was troubled with sleeplessness, or rather with reluctant sleepiness, and he had various specifics for promoting it. At first it had been champagne, just before going to bed, and we provided that. But later he appeared from Boston with four bottles of lager beer under his arms. Lager beer, he said now, was the only thing to make you go to sleep, and we provided that. Still later, on a visit I paid him at Hartford, I learned that hot scotch was the only soporific worth considering, and scotch whiskey duly found its place on our sideboard. One day, very long afterward, I asked him if he were still taking hot scotch to make him sleep. He said he was not taking anything. For a while he had found going to bed on the bathroom floor a soporific. Then one night he went to rest in his own bed at ten o'clock, and had gone promptly to sleep without anything. He had done the like with the like effect ever since. Of course, it amused him. There were few experiences of life, grave or gay, which did not amuse him, even when they wronged him. He came on to Cambridge in April 1875 to go with me to the centennial ceremonies at Concord in celebration of the Battle of the Minutemen with the British troops a hundred years before. We both had special invitations, including passage from Boston. But I said, why bother to go into Boston, when we could just as well take the train for Concord at the Cambridge station? He equally decided that it would be absurd. So we breakfasted deliberately, and then walked to the station, reasoning of many things as usual. When the train stopped, we found it packed inside and out. People stood dense on the platforms of the cars. To our startled eyes, they seemed to project from the windows, and unless memory betrays me, they lay strewn upon the roofs, like brakemen slain at the post of duty. Whether this was really so or not, it is certain that the train presented an impenetrable front even to our imagination, and we left it to go its way without the slightest effort to board. We remounted the fame-worn steps of Porter's Station, and began exploring North Cambridge for some means of transportation overland to Concord, for we were that far on the road by which the British went and came on the day of battle. The liverymen, whom we appealed to, received us, some with compassion, some with derision, but in either mood convinced us that we could not have hired a cat to attempt our conveyance, 
much less a horse or vehicle of any description. It was a raw, windy day, very unlike the exceptionally hot April day, when the routed redcoats, pursued by the colonials, fled panting back to Boston, with their tongues hanging out like dogs. But we could not take due comfort in the vision of their discomfiture. We could almost envy them, for they had at least got to Concord. A swift procession of coaches, carriages, and buggies, all going to Concord, passed us, inert and helpless, on the sidewalk in the peculiarly cold mud of North Cambridge. We began to wonder if we might not stop one of them and bribe it to take us, but we had not the courage to try, and Clemens seized the opportunity to begin suffering with an acute indigestion, which gave his humor a very dismal cast. I felt keenly the shame of defeat, and the guilt of responsibility for our failure, and when a gay party of students came toward us on the top of a tally-ho, luxuriously empty inside, we felt that our chance had come, and our last chance. He said that if I would stop them, and tell them who I was, they would gladly, perhaps proudly, give us passage. I contended that, if with his far vaster renown we would approach them, our success would be assured. While we stood, lost in this contest of civilities, the coach passed us, with gay notes blown from the horns of the students, and then Clemens started in pursuit, encouraged with shouts from the merry party who could not imagine who was trying to run them down, to a rivalry in speed. The unequal match could end only in one way, and I am glad I cannot recall what he said when he came back to me. Since then I have often wondered at the grief which would have wrung those blithe young hearts if they could only have known that they might have had the company of Mark Twain to Concord that day, and did not. We hung about unavailingly in the bitter wind a little longer, and then slowly, very slowly, made our way home. We wished to pass as much time as possible in order to give probability to the deceit we intended to practice, for we could not bear to own ourselves baffled in our boasted wisdom of taking the train at Porter's Station, and had agreed to say that we had been to Concord and got back. Even after coming home to my house, we felt that our statement would be wanting in verisimilitude without further delay, and we crept quietly into my library and made up a roaring fire on the hearth, and thawed ourselves out in the heat of it before we regained our courage for the undertaking. With all these precautions we failed, for when our statement was imparted to the proposed victim, she instantly pronounced it unreliable, and we were left with it on our hands intact. I think the humor of this situation was finally a greater pleasure to Clemens than an actual visit to Concord would have been. 
only a few weeks before his death, he laughed our defeat over with one of my family in Bermuda, and exulted in our prompt detection. End of chapter 10 Read by Dennis Sayers of Modesto, California for LibriVox Fall 2006